And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. All right, look, if you've been in entrepreneurship, startups, any of that game, then you're familiar with venture capital. But what's deep tech venture capital? That's what we're going to get into get into during today's show. Before I introduce who my conversation is going to be with today, today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult and Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Go to Fullscale.io to learn more. That's my company if you're not aware and we love talking to Startup Hustle listeners. Once again, it takes like two minutes to fill out a couple questions at Fullscale.io. And our platform will match you up with available testers, developers, leaders, and who knows, maybe even a couple more people. With me today, I've got David Van Wien. David is the founder and CIO at Aventurine Capital Group, uh, LLC. And they're in Palo Alto, California. Ever heard of that place? I think that's Silicon Valley. Am, am I right about that, David? You're right, right in the belly of the beast. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that's, and that is also, I think, probably fair to say the venture capital of the you know venture capital capital of the world i think that's that's probably right there are other people who are uh, trying to change that dynamic but none of them yeah. have succeeded so far yeah well you know there's a lot of stuff going on there and rightfully so you know it's been out there for uh, you've been doing stuff out there for a long time so you know i like to start all my conversations with a little bit about your backstory so why don't we jump in there well great i've been a lifelong entrepreneur so this is a uh, my first foray into professional finance, although I've been an angel investor since uh, one of my companies went public about 20 years ago. I'm now professionalizing that and taking the things I've, I've learned from years of running companies. And one of those things is that uh, deep tech companies are different. Deep tech companies have special considerations. They have all the normal startup stuff, but then there's some new things, some additional things that are part of the mix in building that type of business. And I uh, ran one of those companies, Intertrust Technologies Corporation, back in the 90s, and we had a real success story in that business, but it wasn't because we were able to access the venture capital markets. We needed to use unconventional financing right up to the point where we were uh, preparing to bring the company public. And so I learned a lesson there, and I'm founder of seven different businesses, the one that I did just prior to this. I ran into the same kinds of financing issues that I'd experienced at Intertrust. And so I decided that I was going to build a company that was the investor I wished I'd met when I was running deep tech businesses. So how, how, when you say deep tech, how do you define that? So deep tech for me really represents foundational technologies. So these are uh, breakthroughs that can be applied in multiple markets. So when we're doing our economic analysis, it's at least three markets where the technology can apply. Most of the people we're uh, talking with now and the technologies we're working with are applicable to six or seven markets. 
So that's really when I say deep tech, that's what I'm that's what I'm driving at. Okay. All right. So, um, and then let, let's delve a little further into that. Cause like I said, I think a lot of people are familiar with, you know, they, we, we often refer to riches and the niches and, and we've got industry specific solutions. What's a good example of some things that would be obvious for, you know, the last, I don't know, however, whatever time frame you want to go with, like, what's a, what's a couple examples of deep tech that most listeners would recognize? Well, right now we're working with a couple of companies in the AI field who are mm-hmm. doing some technologies that are really quite different from generative AI and that will move the whole field forward, uh, particularly in the in the area of natural language processing, which has become a hot topic due to OpenAI and their chat GPT system. But there's some challenges within that technology that can be addressed by putting some new systems into, into play. And so we've been working for a number of years with people who've done some real breakthrough work in natural language. And that's an example of a technology that applies to many, many different markets. Another example, we're working with a generalized quantum computing technology right now that again has that same character, a foundational system that will apply in many, many different areas, everything from finance to life sciences. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of chat GPT, while you were mentioning that, I asked it what it defined deep tech as, and it did mention AI, machine learning, quantum computing, robotics, biotech, nanotechnology. And these are all things that um, I think people also talk about emerging tech. And, you know, one of the things that I've come across and realized is give you a little background about myself, David, is, is I employ a whole lot of software developers at full scale and we help people staff their tech companies. And when it comes to deep tech or emerging technologies, we quite honestly have a very difficult time finding people to do work because there's no experience with it. So, you know, we, we have to take the approach of finding the smartest people that we can find in many cases and hoping that they are as smart as we thought they were because smart people figure things out. So uh, when it comes to deep tech and venture capital, um, you know, is that is that a recognized thing when you're investing? Like, hey, there's not a whole lot of domain knowledge or people that have experience in this in this space. So we're hoping that the companies that we invest in or work with are going to find a way to figure it out. Yeah, we are you're right on the money, Matt, with the challenges in building these kinds of companies from the from the outset. And our approach to that has been to develop a new style of early stage investing that's complementary to traditional venture capital. So our approach is uh, quite different from that of a a traditional venture capitalist, in that we work with these uh, individuals, these these scientists and engineers, from the very earliest stages of their uh, of their development as they're coming from the lab and into the market. And in order to do that, we have to give them uh, more time than you would normally have in a venture capital type environment, where an exit in the three to five year time frame is really an essential part of their mandate as investors. And so. We've built a different type of fund. It's a perpetual fund. So uh, our fund doesn't last for five or seven or 10 years like a traditional venture capital fund, but rather it's, a, it's an evergreen fund that runs continuously. And that's because the, the core challenges that you face here in this area can't be addressed readily through venture capital. And I'm going to get to your, your point here in just a, just a minute. In that when you're working with foundational technologies, you have a challenge that isn't present in a traditional, like an enterprise SaaS business, and that you need to invest the time and the capital 
into getting the core technology to the point where you can use it for an application. And that takes more time and costs more money than a normal venture capitalist will apply because they have alternatives. They have choices. They can work with technologies that don't have those requirements. So what we did with our model is find a way to generate a return from that period of time. And that's through uh, intellectual property is a core broadly defined. That's patents, trade secrets, uh, product technology itself, the branding around that technology, as well as the, uh, the data, increasingly data now, especially in some of these fields is really essential. So we focus on investing in that element of it, in addition to the operating company that is being put together. And by, by doing that in the right way, we're able to generate a return for investors from that investment early on. Now, the implications from that, from an operating point of view, are that you need to help the scientist and entrepreneur build the team. The people we run into are, are never the exit-worthy CEO that a venture capitalist is looking for. So we have to do two things. We have to uh, be patient. We have to give them time. One to three years is really the window that we're looking at when we engage uh, before they're really ready for traditional venture capital. And during that period of time is when we're doing the recruiting and the incubation that you referred to, getting the smartest people that you can find in an area that have the right kind of background. But when you're doing this deep tech work and this, this highly inventive and innovative uh, technologies, you don't, you're not going to find a ready pool of engineers. So you need to be prepared for that. And we do that through something we call our investment studio, which is taking the concepts of a, of a venture studio, which you might, might have heard about and probably uh, delved into where you really engage actively with the company to help them with their business plan, with their staffing, with all of the uh, particulars that go into building a business. And we do that in combination with development of their intellectual property. So we incubate both parts of the business and we take our time doing it. And that is really uh, it's critical to being able to bring deep tech to market. And one of the challenges that we've seen is that deep tech isn't getting funded. And it isn't really uh, being able to develop some of the amazing things that are in the lab into truly commercially viable systems. So our approach here is to invest differently and then incubate these businesses for a number of years to get them ready for the venture capital ladder. You mentioned the exit worthy CEO, and I want to talk about that because I think that's a, an interesting comment. So um, with the deep tech, I'm assuming that at this point you're talking about, all right, so I'm going to make this as, as palatable as possible for anyone listening. Sometimes the mad scientists that invented these cutting edge things are, aren't the great, aren't the best people to go out and sell them. Is that, is that what you mean by the exit worthy CEO or is, is that, am I off on that? No, you're exactly right. That it's, um. Uh... You shouldn't predict that you're going to find the those qualities in the same individual. The mad scientist is not going to be the sales-oriented, hard-charging CEO. And we, we anticipate that and we give ourselves some time to do the recruiting around that role. It's really essential to the success of the overall enterprise that that uh, CEO is in place as well as the, the classic VP of, of engineering and marketing and the, the normal key roles in a startup. Normally, the people that we're interacting with, if they are able to engage at all operationally, there'll be a CTO or a, a CSO, chief science officer. That's the appropriate role for them. But in the venture capital world, that's not what they're looking for. Because you only have the three to five year 
timeline, you're looking across the table. The very first thing that you're assessing is whether or not this individual is likely to be able to to build this business and get you the exit that your limited partners are expecting. Yeah, we run into that a lot. We've had that conversation. You know, here we are on Startup Hustle, and this will be approximately in in between episode eleven hundred and twelve hundred. So there's a pretty big sample space of conversation there. And I've had a lot of a lot of chats with with people that were the mad scientists, as as far as like many of us would look at it. That's someone that loved the product, was obsessed with building it, and then would say, and then there was a time when I just had to go kind of do something else because they weren't very good. They weren't very good at selling it or didn't often want to. And that's a very interesting personality dynamic. Now we, you've mentioned the three to five year exit horizon with deep tech venture invest investment. I mean, is this more like a 15 year window? Cause I feel like a lot of the stuff that I, I, I don't know, I've published some videos recently talking about <clears throat> inventors and, and, you know, most inventors that, that are working on big things are, are working. OK, so it's 2023. They're working on what they're going to what's coming out in 2033 or 2043. So how long is that horizon stretched out to when a company like yours is, is going, or when a firm like yours is going to invest in a comp- in, into any deep tech company? Well, we look for a, a very long time horizon, as you just mentioned. The if you look at the the term of a U.S. patent is twenty years, and that I just use that as a proxy. It, it isn't right. a hard and fast rule. But one of the interesting dynamics there is that year twenty, if you've licensed properly and genuinely found what we're looking for, is going to be your best year, followed by year nineteen, year eighteen, year seventeen. And so as you're, as you're building these technologies, you are very much looking at a longer term time horizon. And because every time we invest, we're, uh, we're pushing that out 20 years time. That's one of the reasons that drove us towards a, a perpetual fund rather than a, a fixed time, a so-called closed end uh, fund. So when we're working now, because there are very few people who are able to really invest in this space, we are finding technologies that have licensing opportunities right away. Not only an interesting go-to-market, but have interesting uh, uh, opportunities to have the technology used in, used in other markets. But we expect the real return window to be at least 20 years when we get it right. And if you look, if you imagine if you had the opportunity to invest in the transistor back in the, in the 60s and you keep the research rolling, you'd still be working on that technology today. You'd still be licensing that technology now. And I had some experience with that in this uh, Intertrust company, which ended up creating the most valuable patent family in history. And we did that because the technology was first started being licensed in the in the 90s and is still yielding royalties today. Yeah, you know, I had an interesting uh, podcast recording. It was, you know couple hundred episodes ago at this point, but you know, we're here in Kansas city and there's a company called I verified that, um, you know, it's probably at this point, 20 years ago or close to 20 years ago had, had, had created some cutting edge technology around retinal scanning and they ended up selling it to Alibaba and Toby rush, who's one of the founders, um, and here on the show was talking about, you know, he asked, well, why did you, why did you, decide that or realize it was the right time to exit. And he said, well, I realized that what we had built was a feature 
it wasn't really a company. It was something that was going to be impactful for a lot of different things. And it was going to be a feature on a bunch of other people's uh, on a bunch of other people's platforms and products, but it wasn't necessarily a standalone thing itself. How often does something like that happen when you head down the road of, of determining the market viability or monet- you know, ability to monetize any of these things that you're building years in advance? That, hap- that we expect that to happen just about every time. Okay. Because- for just the reason that you're describing. So when we've uh, been investing, I mentioned a couple of foundational AI technologies, one of which is able to understand the meaning of language rather than the statistical associations. And the other is really able to understand people's state of mind. You could think of it as an empathetic AI. Mm -hmm. These types of technologies can be used as the foundation of a highly differentiated business, but the real opportunity is to see them licensed very, very broadly across the entire market. So when you have a foundational technology, it's quite different in that rather than focusing on the uh, the capabilities of a particular business and finance speak, you option the P&L of that company, right? You're trying, you're you're hoping you're buying an option that that company is going to grow and thrive and generate profits and ultimately exit. When you work from the foundational point of view, you're actually looking to option entire markets. Your best outcome is that everybody in a particular market space ends up adopting and integrating the technology. And so that's why it takes a little bit of a different model to be able to really develop those types of opportunities. And that's why we created what we call the PIPI fund, the Perpetual IP Income Fund, which takes some of the concepts of venture capital and applies them directly and then adds this element of perpetual IP licensing and the, and the royalties that it can generate. How do you go about determining what that possibility might be? I know that in the world of traditional venture capital, there's a lot of formulas and approaches and expectations as far as a company's growth or, you know, any of it. I'm just curious about what that conversation looks like for something that, well, I mean, what did that look like for natural language processing 10 to 15 years ago? Right. So, Our approach in that area is to target the known bottlenecks and roadblocks within the six different practice areas where we operate. And so we are, uh, we're always prepared to find a new one, but our approach is rather, it's more of a spearfishing approach than a dragnet approach to investing. We're not looking to bring in as many uh, uh, opportunities as we possibly can and then sift for the best ones. We're looking for solutions to particular problems that the market knows it has. And for example, the the challenge of hallucination in uh, large language models, many people are just now becoming aware of that, but that's been a, that's been an issue, a known issue for many years with. uh, Can you explain that? Sure. The challenge in large language models is that the entire system is based on uh, statistical relationships between words and phrases. And as you probably heard, the the core of the technology is, is predicting what the next word ought to be if you're moving down a particular pathway. And uh, those types of statistical relationships, if the data sets are large enough, can be uh, really eerily similar to the system understanding what you're really, uh, what you're really driving at. But it doesn't really uh, have a, an understanding. It doesn't really know what those words mean when you're, when you're in that context. And so if you're, if you're able to uh, add that dimension to it, you can take all of the different market spaces where generative AIs are applicable and talk about integrating a new technology into the platform that does understand what words mean and is able to build these uh, more concrete relationships. Because 
when generative AI is operating, it's told to reach a particular outcome. It has a goal that it's trying to meet, namely answer your question or your implied question in whatever it is you've typed into, say, ChatGPT. And in the process, it, it can't really tell whether or not the answer it's giving you has appropriate meaning. It can't really tell whether it's accurate because it has no idea what the words mean. And so being able to address that has been a known problem. And so some breakthrough technology taking a completely different approach. Uh, the problem isn't hard if you approach it from a totally different angle, which is what the researchers have done in the company that I'm referring to now. And so that the ability to recognize that this type of error can't be factored out. You can't build a large enough data set that you're going to completely eliminate this. You have to use a new approach. So that we knew is a bottleneck or a roadblock to the development of generative AI. And so by looking for um, natural language technologies that address that specific thing, we're able to um, really zero in on large market opportunities because the market knows it has this problem. You don't have to teach the world that there's this challenge within generative AI. We can work within that and, and therefore our market analysis. We do some of the traditional things that venture capitalists do in analyzing markets and growth, but rather than identifying just a particular company, we're looking across entire markets to see where the technology would be most applicable. And so in that way, it's a, it's a more of a, a broad-based survey of the different opportunities. Although we do concentrate as well on, the, on there's a go-to-market company. Uh, the strategy is not just on the licensing. In order to make the licensing viable, you also have to invest in a, uh, a startup that's going to use the technology for the first time. That hardens up the platform, improves the IP, and also serves as marketing for the other licensing areas. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that. And before we do, I want to remind everyone that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the Fullscale platform to define your technical needs and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. But visit fullscale.io to learn more. You know, thanks for explaining that. I, 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 I just realized while you were explaining how something like chat GPT works that, you know, I, I remember it was, I mean, man, probably like six weeks ago that I actually read an article talking about the predictive relationship. It's not as smart as we think it is. It's smart at knowing what word to say next, but it isn't necessarily smart at knowing what words it has said. And, and that, that's, a, that's kind of a dangerous thing in some regards because, at some point, you start to trust the things that spit out any kind of output. And I think that sometimes we don't consider where it's coming up with that output. And like David had explained, you know, GPT, uh, by the way, if you ask Ch chat GPT what chat GPT is, it will tell you there is no such thing. There's only GPT. And I know that because we did an episode that was fueled only by chat GPT. And that was the very first thing. It corrected me one minute into the episode. And I was like, okay. Um, but, but yeah, it's, you know, it's scanning, you know, billions and billions of sentences, words and whatever. And, and it will say, and I'm going to say whatever it wants to say based on how, so, so somewhere along the line, enough people said that in a phrase, a sentence, a Reddit post, a blog post, 
but it doesn't necessarily know what it's reading in a lot of regards. So, you know, that's a, that's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I think, I think the whole, uh, chat GPT thing and, and open AI is a very interesting example. You mentioned having this foundational technology and then needing to invest in a startup that is essentially the marketing tool or the, it, it helps prove it out. I mean, there have been ever since GPT came out, there's been like, there's thousands of new startups that have popped out that are, you know, I was talking about this recently. I don't think as many, I don't think uh, people realize how much stuff the open AI API is fueling. And that's, so that's the kind of licensing that you're, that that's gotta be kind of like a Holy grail kind of thing. If you're, if you invested in that deep tech, am I correct? Yes, you are correct. That's, uh, that's very much. someone Someone else's car doesn't run without your fuel. Right, exactly. And that's how you create this uh, economic effect of optioning an entire market. So if you're working in with the gasoline metaphor or the battery metaphor, every manufacturer needs one. Yeah. All right. So, you know, I, I got to feel like the failure rate for in, in, in deep tech venture capital has got to be remarkably high. So that's that is true. And so the the way you mitigate those risks is by uh, putting the intellectual property into its own entity so that you're able to uh, take another shot. You get another bite at the apple by investing in the intellectual property, because if it works, if the technology really does address a particular problem like the one we've been talking about now with generative AI, then you're able to take another shot at it and another shot at it and try a different market because you have protected the body of, of IP. And in that way, you get multiple shots on goal with each investment in a foundational technology. So in that way, you can really reduce the risks because you're not uh, combining the risks of the technology and the, those technical risks with the operating risk of a startup. So, you know, the, the, it's difficult to patent software how difficult is it to patent something like generative AI? Is it, are you able to patent generative AI as that broadly, or do you have to be hyper specific with it? Cause I feel like that would be almost impossible to do not understanding where your users or licensees were going to actually utilize it later. So you're correct to say that, Patenting software is very challenging right now, particularly in the U.S. So the pendulum may be swinging a little bit. It's it's gone back and forth on this particular subject. Um, but in, in most cases, patents are not your first line of defense when you're building the IP. We call them IP clusters, which combine patents with trade secrets, product technology, branding, and data. And it's really that whole cluster that you're looking to license. And in the case of generative AI, uh, the more the most interesting parts of it are likely in the uh, trade secrets around how some of the algorithms have been fine tuned for a particular purpose, as well as in uh, in the data that's being used, the particular training data sets that are being applied, and then ultimately the product technology. You have something that works and that is therefore is easy to license, but it isn't impossible to patent software. It's just difficult. The more uh, foundational the system is, the closer you get towards the ability to patent. But you really can't rely on patents alone when you're thinking about the IP protection for AI. 
Yeah, according to my notes, and may, maybe maybe this number has risen, but it says that you have received 45 patents or you're associated with them. So you definitely have some experience in that in that field. Indeed, I do. I, I, that number, that, that's uh, on the on the low end uh, in the U.S. I'm uh, either uh, I'm a named inventor on about 200 U.S. patents, about 650 worldwide. So yeah, that it's, it's that's a we have a there's a bunch of people that work at our company that I won't name the company they used to work at, but um, they've been a, so they they take a lot of pride in that, and I think that they should. I think it's a very interesting thing to. Um, you know, I often refer to starting a business. It's like, it's, it's like having a child, you know, you got to raise it. You got to give, you got, you have to conceive it. You have to birth it. You have to deal with the really messy years and you're hoping that it grows up to be a productive adult. So, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work and there's a lot to go through with that. It's a, it's a labor of love on some days. Indeed. You're right. It is. And that's been uh, my experience, what you described. You have these Eureka moments uh, but that is just the very beginning of the process of creating valuable intellectual property is having the insights and, and then put, writing them down and getting a team of people excited about them. There's a lot that goes into building defensible IP and then going out and licensing it effectively. And that's really where the monetization uh, dimension comes in. And that's why it takes a team. You know, I work with uh, a number of different people. I have one aspect of the business, but I also work with uh, monetization experts who really appreciate the nuances of creating defensible, licensable IP, which on the one hand uh, is uh, is highly technical, but in its own right, in a legal sense, but it's essential to really driving the widest adoption of technology. Those commercial incentives are the most effective tool that has been yet devised for getting interesting technology into as many hands as possible, into the hands of everybody who will really value it. And that's, uh, that's why it's worth it. You put all that energy into creating the IP and it's ultimately to see the technology used as widely as possible. Yeah. And, you know, I think for, for those entrepreneurs that are listening, many of the people that, that hold the patents and have uh, benefited from, from these licensing agreements um, have become quite wealthy and they are often people you've never heard of. They aren't, uh, they aren't, uh, they aren't Elon or, or people that are high profile. And I, I remember when I lived in Indianapolis, there was this giant house that we would always drive by. And eventually one of my friends, as we were driving by said, you know, that's one of the biggest houses in the city. You know how that guy earned it? And I said, no, tell me, man. He goes, he invented voicemail. And you hmm. just talk about like, you know, there's just these weird little things like, you know, that you use that are every day part of all of our lives. And there was someone somewhere that said, man, you know, your cell phone should just answer itself, you know, or something like that. And, and, and that, you know, that kind of curiosity as I'm now approaching my 50th year on the planet has led to, I, I, I have a hobby where I've, I went, you know, when I find time. I like to study what makes people do genius things. And I think talent and genius are very often misunderstood. And let, let me explain. You may have heard this before, David. I have a feeling you have. But, but, you know, talent is being able to hit the target that everybody sees. And genius is being able to hit the target that no one even knew was there. And, and these are the things that 
change the shape of markets and products and the things that we use. And, you know, somewhere it's like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of famous people out there. And there's a lot of people that you also have never heard of that have done genius things. David, when you think about someone doing genius things, what traits or qualities do they usually exhibit? Or what do you see in the people that are really innovating the future of our planet? Well, they, they tend to be iconoclasts. They tend to be people who have come into the work that they're doing with an attitude that, they'll, that they're trying to solve a problem that nobody else has, has solved. And the reason they're going to be successful is because everybody else is doing it wrong. And in, that's one of the traits I see just uh, again and again. So, so sometimes this can make them a little bit difficult to work with. Uh, I'm, I'm smiling and laughing there because you're 100% on it. It's, there's a level of stubbornness and, 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 and perceived arrogance that comes with that. Right. right. That's right. But, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, maybe it's a, a twist on an old phrase. It's not really arrogant if you can do it, right? Right. Well, no, there, you're arrogant and you're crazy until you get it right. Then you're a genius. But, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's <laughs> been the case with essentially all of the real inventors that, that we work with at, uh, at Aventurine is they all have that same character to it. Which is probably why they don't make the best exit-worthy CEOs later on some days, well, but yeah. They don't because, it, because you know, if you as a venture capitalist are, are too dumb to not invest in what they're doing, <laughs> they're just going to hit the road. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not going to fight you on that one. Um, you know, one of the things, so there are there are a list of traits that are, are very common amongst people that, so I, well, I've learned a couple things is one that anybody that calls themselves a genius usually isn't. Um, the same thing goes for a guru. I think that that's an external point of view that someone else has with you. Um, uh, and then there is one particular trait or quality, and this is basic. It's not as, it's not as sophisticated as, as being an iconoclast, but if you don't possess, if you aren't a highly curious person, you are almost guaranteed to not do things that people will judge later as genius. You have to have that, 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 that innate ability to just always want to try new stuff. Like, and, and I've had this conversation with everyone from tech people to rock stars. And, um, you know, and I have a friend who's a world-class guitarist who when practicing will intentionally play wrong notes in order to Mm -hmm. see what, what naturally occurs with him next. And I think it's a very interesting approach because, you know, there's this, he's forcing himself to make errors, which actually solves like a whole bunch of other problems down the road, because eventually you will make an error on stage. How do you react to it? But it's just like, it's, you kind of have to force that, that, that change a little bit. It's, it's, it's disruption with, you know, what you normally wouldn't want to do. Like, I don't, I'd never run into anybody that intentionally made mistakes during practice, but he always finds new stuff and different things that occur afterward. And so much of our best inventions and, and life-changing things have, occurred, well, we'll say, quote, by accident. I don't think they were truly an accident when you're in the lab working on something and something else occurs and you figure it out. I don't know if that's an accident, but yeah. And then uh, uh, in in regards to the iconoclast and solving problems that you, everyone else is wrong and I'm right. um, That's still a level of curiosity. That means you're, you're, you are at some point that Sam, the first salmon swam upstream 
and all the other ones were like, you're crazy. It's so much easier to go the other way. But yeah, there's a better life up there, I promise. And then everyone kind of follows along. So now in the, in the spirit and the sake of following along, I've noticed as have many others that investment in deep tech, as we will say, often does follow that first salmon that swum upstream. Now a couple more go, there's a ton of money pouring into AI. There was before. How much of, how much of your companies or the companies you've invested in or their success I don't want to say is dependent, but is sometimes driven by market trends or interest or whatever. I, you mentioned as venture capitalists, and and let's I'll I'll call myself one even just because I'm going to say this. Sometimes we're not smart enough to figure out the rest of it, and you follow the trends. I mean, how how, how much of that is like okay, like if you were if you were in generative AI. Well, I guess OpenAI just got a twenty billion dollar investment from Microsoft. That that's that's not small. So how much how much of this is sitting around waiting for that moment or driven by trends or like finally there's that that awakening moment? I mean, is that something that you kind of depend on and hope for? Because that's a, a marketing component, not necessarily a research component. It is a marketing component. You're right. And the way we approach that is through this roadblock and bottleneck <laughs> meaning we we really concentrate our efforts on problems that the market knows it has and the the generative ai example that you just gave is a is a great example there's a ton of investment flowing into it and the more people become uh, invested in the success the more people are aware of the limitations and the areas where uh, a new technology added to the platform could really address some of the growth challenges and so that our strategy is very much to concentrate on those particular elements, because if you want to de-risk the prediction that you just described a moment ago, when is, when is the trend eventually going to hit this new category that I've, uh, that I've invented or I've invested in the inventors that, that have, uh, have come up with that, is to recognize that when, when markets evolve and when markets develop, they do uh, naturally understand and appreciate when these uh, new technologies could be applied. You can't predict exactly that last November generative AI was going to hit the mainstream, uh, but you can say eventually this technology is going to hit the mainstream. We have a perpetual fund and the, the term that we're working with, we're just not being constrained by the same timelines as other investors. And that's one of the reasons you need to do that because you, you buy yourself, I'll just use patents again, you buy yourself that 20 year period of time and it doesn't really matter when, whether it's year three or year five or year seven, when the technology is becomes most relevant. If you've given yourself an option on that market, you, uh, you're in a good position whenever that day does come. And the power of some of the applications, though, that can come out of something like uh, generalized quantum computing, these are well known. People understand how they can be used in drug discovery and how they can be used in security and, and how they can be used in uh, finance. These types of uh, applications are well understood. The challenge has been trying to create an environment where uh, programmers can work with quantum computers in the way they uh, work with a traditional uh, digital computer. Um, so in that way, it's not as risky as it sounds 
because if you are solving a problem that the market knows it has, but is continuing to function, the markets continue to operate without that technology, you're actually not taking as big of a risk as it might first seem. It seems like an overnight success, but it's not really. Yeah, I'm not a big believer in the overnight success. I think most of the ones that people think are like generative AI has been out there for a while. I mean, there's been a lot of tools and things that will write a post for you or do a lot of different things. And, you know, that uh, most overnight successes are like nine years in the making. I've, yeah. I've actually run into that on the podcast. People are like, man, that, that, that got pretty big. I'm like, they're pretty big fast. I'm like, no, it didn't. Like we've been doing this every day for a long time. <laughs> there was a time when 50 people would listen to an episode, you know, and that's, it's, yeah. I think the bottom line is keep doing it, people. You never know when your time's going to arrive. It's, uh, uh, it, you know, you talk about, but going back to the, the people doing genius things, all of them, I have yet to find anyone who wasn't, who didn't put in the work. And in my first book, Balance Me, I the the thesis of it was that success demands payment in advance. And I have yet to disprove that. So, you know, even the smartest, most talented people still have to put in reps and they still have to figure it out. And there's nothing, it, it's, yes, some people are better at doing certain things than others, but those people usually find ways to polish it. And you know, so much about this podcast is not just about success. It's also about failure. And that's a normal thing. So, you know, if you're out there listening, don't, don't get down when you, it's easy to look around and be on whatever social media platform. And you see all these people flexing their success. Um, well, first off, a lot of them aren't as successful as you think they are. And a lot of them worked really hard to get there. So just keep, keep doing that. All right. Well, David, we are at the end of our show here. And I want to remind everyone, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, and leaders, full scale can help. We have the people, the platform, and the processes to help you build and manage a team of experts. All you need to do is go to fullscale.io, answer a few questions, and let our platform match you up with fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, testers, and leaders. At Full Scale, we specialize in long-term teams that work only for you, helping you get a team of people that understand things that aren't always easy to understand. So David, uh, uh, on our way out, I mean, what would you like to say to the entrepreneurs, technologists, and deep tech venture capitalists that would like to follow in your footsteps? Don't give up. You're saving the world. <clears throat> well, well, well said, well said. And, you know, like it's kind of a, a you know, carry on what I just said there. Like, look at it, it. I don't think you ever know when success is going to knock on your door. I think that what is important is that you're there to answer it when it does, you know, and that's, that's a challenge. So uh, David, thank you so much. I, I appreciate the stimulating conversation uh, to begin my week. I will, I will carry this through the rest of my day and try to do smart stuff. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure being here, Matt. Thanks, David. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.